Hey guys, it's Harris. If you've listened to our show at all, then you consistently hear us talk about Story. Story 2016, Story 2017. It's an annual conference for creators, artists, dreamers, and storytellers of all kinds. Um, a huge announcement just went up on the website. We have our initial speaker lineup for 2017's conference. There's more speakers coming, but you at least get a glimpse into our 2017 lineup. There's a video highlight reel so you can see what story was like last year, along with our amazing theme for this year, a carnival of curiosity. If you're a creator, you do not want to miss this. If you listen to the story podcast and gain anything from it, then you will love our live annual event. Check it out. Learn more at story2017.com. And if you stick around to the end of this episode, I'll give you a discount code for a hundred bucks off. We have our contribution to make. This is our craft. This is what we do. What makes it different than any other craft or any other work? We're, we are in pursuit, like hopefully everybody, of um, fulfilling the errand upon which we were sent here to, to do. And so, you know, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, our culture values the mystique of the artist, you know, or we have this romantic idea of what artists do. We work. <laughs> we get up in the morning and we look at blank pages like somebody goes to the office and can't figure out a spreadsheet, you know. Like, so it's like we just have to keep it in reasonable ideas of who we are and who we're, you know, without elevating it to some strange place. We all have a contribution to make as artists. We just have to keep it in reasonable ideas of who we are. But who are we? Isn't that a question that we as artists and storytellers so often struggle with? I mean, I know I do, but what if there was a way to get a better glimpse into understanding who we are and have a framework on understanding each other as we collaborate and create to tell better stories together? I am Harris III, and that is merely the beginning of the meaningful conversation to be had this week here on the Story Podcast. There are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination. The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. Sammy Harvey and I recently sat down with Ian Morgan Cron. I wish I was known more as like one of the Beatles <laughs> than the Enneagram guys, you know. Yeah, yeah. Do people instantly want to talk about the Enneagram right away as soon as they meet you? Some do, yeah. So, but sure. if it's a total stranger on an airplane and they say, what do you do? It's not like you're like, well, you know, there's this thing called the Enneagram. No, on an airplane I tell them I'm an Episcopal priest and then they put their headphones back on and <laughs> leave me alone. And I want to talk to you about Jesus. And that, you know, have you read the Bible? <laughs> Ian is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. I was first introduced to Ian's life and work at Story 2012 in Chicago. He had just released another book and everyone was talking about it. 
He's actually a best-selling author of two books, including the novel Chasing Francis and his spiritual memoir, Jesus, My Father, The CIA, and Me. He is also an artist, a psychotherapist, and a priest. Ian's new book, The Road Back to You, delves into his work with the Enneagram, which seems to have captivated many creative circles in a way that many other personality studies, theories, and writings have. Going into our time with Ian, I had a feeling that everyone wants to talk to him right now about the Enneagram so that they can better understand themselves. But before we get to know more about ourselves, I felt like more perspective could be gained in the process by getting to know Ian on a deeper level first. So how, how is it that you would describe this season of your life right now, or at least in terms of your work? How do you describe what you do? Yeah, well, it's complicated. So I, I, I often just tell people I have a really great portfolio life, right? I have mul- sort of multiple silos of interests. And um, so I'm a songwriter, you know, so part of my week is often dedicated to that. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, a great deal of speaking, other times it's writing, you know, working on books. Um, other times it's uh, spiritual direction, you know, meeting with people. Um, and, uh, you know, another part of it is being a psychotherapist, you know. So it's a little bit over the, all over the map. But if you were to take the whole of that, I'd say that the landscape of my, of my life has been dedicated to helping people enter into a deep conversation with the mystery of who they are and why they're here, you know? And I, that's what really thrills me. So each of those kind of touches on that life project of, you know, we can do that in song, we can do that in therapy, we can do that through a sacramental encounter, you know, in church or outside of church for that matter and so forth. So that's really kind of my life goal is just to help people be in conversation really with the mystery of their lives and that's amazing. not necessarily have answers, but just to probe it and find out what's the activity of grace uh, in their life at any given moment. I've been wanting to have Ian as a guest on the show for a long time for multiple reasons. Being a psychotherapist, combined with being a writer, musician, an artist, along with being a priest, when you think about it, it creates for a wide array of perspective on life. And as usual, we don't shy away from guests on this show who bring up spirituality, especially as it relates to their creative process or view of the role of art or stories in the world. But I also wanted to have him on the show to, yes, talk about the Enneagram. If you've been listening to this podcast on a regular basis, then you've heard what we've heard from our guests. At some point during a majority of interviews, our guest says something, pauses, and then states, well, it's because I'm a, and then states a number. Almost always following it up with, wait, you guys have heard of the Enneagram, right? (laughs) Every time it comes up after the recording stops, we keep finding ourselves saying, you know, someday we need to devote an episode of the story podcast to the Enneagram. Well, it's almost time. We're going to get there by devoting an entire episode to an overview of all nine numbers next week. But before we get there, let's get to know more about Ian and the creative life he has been living. Well, I mean, I was 
one of those little kids, my I think my wife would say, you know, you should have gone to Hogwarts. You know, I, you were definitely a wizard living among the muggles, you know, just an odd kid, you know. Um, and that's kind of true. I, I always, you know, I was a person that, not to be special here, you know, um, but um, well, I saw the world as a very enchanted place, you know, uh, far more than just a material place. And that can make you a little crazy as a kid, you know, in terms of how other people experience you. And uh, so uh, I wrote poetry as a little kid. I, I don't even know why. I didn't even read poetry, but somehow or another it just seemed like something I wanted to do, you know. And then I became interested in songwriting because I got in my young teens, grounded for a year, wow. uh, and it stuck. Um, and I learned how to play guitar and a year? started writing songs. Is your family uh, musical? Not one other person in my family is musical. That is just another one of those things that made me feel really strange, <laughs> you know, compared to everybody else. You sure. Know? Um, and then I, you know, I went to college. I majored in English and Romance languages, and then I, I came out. You know, I did everything from sing jingles to, you know, working with youth groups, you know, and that sort of thing. And eventually went to graduate school and to get a degree in theology and then in psychotherapy and become a psychotherapist. And so, I, you know, here in Nashville, I get to have these other creative outlets like songwriting. And so really it's this beautiful kind of bouquet, the sort of things that I do, mm -hmm. uh, which for many years seemed to me like dis, you know, dislocated. Like, what, mm. what is it that I do? I mean, like, it's like, oh, and I'm an Episcopal priest. I left that out. You know, so, <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. So it's sort of like, yeah, hopefully my bishop's not listening. Uh, you know, um, but, you know, it, it was like um, a revelation. One time I was driving across West Texas to or I guess Southwest Texas, to Laity Lodge to speak for a weekend, and uh, which is one of my favorite places to speak. And I you was know, sort of wrestling with this, like, what is it you do? Golly, your poor kids, when people ask, what do your parents do for a living? And they're like, well, huh. it depends on the day for my dad. Um, I just realized that all of these things were, were pools that together fed us the same stream, right? Which is what I said earlier, which is, the remarkable, amazing gift of being here, you know, to be invited to this party, you know, called life, you know, like that God, uh, however people choose to define that, um, wanted you to be. I mean, they, you know, that's pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. You know, like someone wanted you to be, right? And to help people find what what does that mean? Like, what are the implications of that? And beyond what do you do, you know, with who you are, but just who you are. Like, that's part of the adventure of being here is to understand that interior landscape and out of that would flow everything else. Something I've accidentally noticed since starting the Story Podcast is that artists and creators have a hard time describing what they do when asked to do so. I have a hard time describing what I do when I'm asked to do so. 
Because Ian is, among many things, a psychotherapist, I was curious if he could give me some insight into why that is. What do you think that is? What is it about artists and storytellers that struggle to answer that question, at least in a simple title? Right. Well, um, I could give you a very simple answer, which is that there's many artists who are fours on the Enneagram. So I'll just bring up the Enneagram <laughs> for a second, right? <laughs> so uh, that, that's not to say that all artists are, but a disproportionate number in that population. And, you know, fours have this strange need. It's like almost a compulsion to be understood, and they over-explain. You know, and just instead of saying, I'm an artist, I'm a painter, you know, or I'm an author, uh, they go, but, and then they have to qualify it. Then they also have to sometimes prettify it, you know what I mean? Like kind of mm-hmm. make it special and mm-hmm. kind of unique, and so they want to go into detail. But, you know, uh, you know, Maybe it's indicative of the fact that even artists don't really understand what they do. Um, that what they do is as much a mystery to them as they, you know, as it is to others. You know, like ask painters their most the worst question you can ask a painter is, "How long did it take you to do that?" Hmm. You know, what I mean, they'll be looking at a painting, "How long did that take you to do?" And they're like. That is an absolutely irrelevant question. <laughs> no, that just reveals how little you understand about painting. Uh, and really, it's you know another great story along those lines, which does address your question. I, I think it was maybe Van Cl- No, it was Stravinsky. Was at a patron's dinner party one night. They were raising money for something. I think this is the details of the story. And he played an excerpt from the Firebird Suite. And you know, an extreme, you know, one of the most important pieces of the 20th century. And this woman who was, you know, trying to be, I think, you know, a pseudo-intellectual in the front row, and she kind of raises her hand. She says, well, maestro, what does that mean? And he, he glared at her for a minute, and then he just started playing it over again, as if to say, this is what it means. You know, it's like there's no... It's like asking a poet, could you please parse that poem? It's like, if I got to parse that poem, you, you didn't get it. You know, so in a way, I don't think artists entirely get it. So I'm not surprised that many of them over-explain themselves because they're working it out in real time with somebody. I've discovered that, and I keep asking the question because I, I love where it leads. It always mm-hmm. leads to these fascinating places of, you know, how someone thinks about their work, and then it kind of leads to this these origin-type questions of like, well, I've never thought about that before. It's like, why did I start doing that type of work or why do I currently do that type of work? You know, it's been really fascinating. I think the older you get, the less you explain. Hmm. You know, like you just... Why do you think that is? Well, I think you've come to some resolution. You know, you realize that at some level you really can't explain yourself and someone else, I mean, isn't often with ours, they aren't going to understand. And why would they? You're having trouble with it yourself. So you just say, this is what I am. This is what I do. And then you put your headphones on and you... (laughs) 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 If you're like me and you say, I'm very pleased to meet you. And, you know, you decide that it's, you know, you're going to listen to something and go to work. I think sometimes too, at least for me, you know, the moment I try to explain what I do, I know it's going to lead to all these other conversations because it's, it's just something that people don't understand. Maybe that's part of being an artist is, you know, you're like, yeah, you're not going to get it with just words. You've got to experience it. So Yeah. The, the key is to do that with humility and not with a sense of it's special mm. uh, in a way that's unhealthy. 
um, or, you know, this is something that can't be probed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of uh, well, unnecessary. What do you think some unhealthy aspects would be what, that would qualify it to be unhealthy? Yeah, I mean, we have our contribution to make, you know, uh, and it's really, this is our craft. This is what we do. What makes it different than any other craft or any other work? We're, we are in pursuit, like hopefully everybody, of um, fulfilling the errand upon which we were sent here to, to do. And so, you know, we shouldn't necessarily, you know, our culture values the mystique of the artist, you know, or, you know, we have this romantic idea of what artists do. We work. <laughs> we get up in the morning and we look at blank pages like somebody goes to the office and can't figure out a spreadsheet, you know. Like, yeah. so it's like, you know, we just have to keep it in, you know, a reason, you know, having reasonable ideas of who we are and sure. who, you know, without elevating it to some strange. That our work place. is not important than anyone else's. It, you know, it is uh, not any more important. Um, it has a particular contribution to the community, right? But it, you know, who doesn't? Hopefully. Mm-hmm. So when did you realize that that was your work? I don't know, maybe 25 years into sobriety and therapy. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean when, you, you know, when you got grounded for a year and you picked up the guitar. Yeah, that you're... was the beginning of a long and storied history of uh, <laughs> other sort of antisocial behaviors. <laughs> or the end, maybe. I have to tell you, hearing you say that it took you a while to figure out that everything that you've done was connected by the time you were already a dad. You said you were driving. Oh, It's yeah. so encouraging to me because I am 24 years old and I feel so behind that I don't really know how all my passions are intersecting at this point in my life. And I feel like it's time for me to figure it out because I'm an adult now and I need to move on and find my thing. And I've always felt that way. I feel like I'm missing what my great calling is. Um... Are you a four on the end? No, I'm not. I'm not a four. I'm a nine with a one wing. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's really encouraging to hear that it took a while for you, too. Yeah, I don't know if writing a memoir helped or not, (laughs) Um, but I'll tell you why it could. Yeah. Um, And this could be an exercise anyone could do without actually writing something uh, of that length or giving it that much energy. Um, Is you're, you're really trying to look for the scarlet thread that, that makes the whole of the quilt of your life, all these different panels or panes, stay together. Mm. Like what is what has always been true about you regardless of circumstances? Mm. You know, like through terrible times, through wonderful times, through boring times, uh, developmentally at all these different moments in your life, what has always been true? You know, that's a, these are the kinds of good probative questions that you can get your hands around and and begin to figure out what is this Aaron? what has always been true about you the eucharist hmm. uh now that may sound like a very strange answer except that uh for me that is what in every season of my life has had a just a magnetic gravitational pull. There's something in the liturgical life, uh, in the sacramental vision of the world, and that is sort of the source and summit, if you will. And so it was there that I always sort of returned um, to the altar or to the table, depending on 
how you want to talk about communion or Lord's Supper or whatever you call these things in our tradition, it's Eucharist. So uh, now that requires exploration. Why? You know, um, and I won't necessarily need to go into the details <laughs> sure. of that with you, but um, it, it actually has to do with imagination. And I, I think artists oftentimes feel alienated in culture without knowing why. It's actually, let's say, in the church or in the, in the faith world, they don't understand that they actually, it's, it's not a theological difference, it's not a personality difference, it's actually a difference in imagination. Hmm. We have a very bad theology of imagination because we actually don't really have a theology of imagination uh, that's been, you know, well explored. But, you know, m- most people of faith, particularly in the Protestant expression, see the world as bereft of God's presence. Like God shows up every now and then, you know, like there's the cross or, you know, and then he goes away, you know, and then we're left in this fallen world with this depravity and, you know, God seems to be far away. And a more Catholic sacramental imagination, which I think most artists have, is that the world is brimming with God's presence, you know, like in the same way that you and I are unaware right now in this room that we are in the light. We're just not even thinking about it. We're reading by it. We're seeing each other by it, but we're unaware of it. You know, we're not thinking, oh, I'm in the light right now. But I think most artists say at some level, not specifically that, but we are in this light. We are aware of it. That's kind of what we do. And our job is to kind of help people in some way um, be in touch with this reality that God is urgently, immediately present in every moment, you know? So you look at George O'Keefe's beautiful flowers and you realize, oh my gosh, I'd never seen a lily before until right now because you brought to life this Mm -hmm. thing. You helped me see what was always there, but I didn't see it. You, You brought it to life in a way that I couldn't possibly have seen poets do it painters do it musicians do it they do it in three and a half minutes you know that's our task it also is what makes a lot of artists very strange (laughs) 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 people are like you know just when you have that view of the world you know it's like people don't always get it you know you're a little bit like hogwarts kid yeah yeah i often talk about you know the role of imagination in the creative process and how i you know there's so much childlikeness to creating art yeah, as little kids, we use our imaginations to create, and then as adults, we use our imaginations to worry, because um, you know, fear and worry of all these things that haven't existed yet, just kind of a misuse of our imagination, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious why why you think that is. Why is it that we use our imagination to create as kids, and then we grow up and we stop uh, start misusing our imagination? I think in part, maybe one reason that just comes to me off the top of my head is when you're a kid, there's no utilitarian value to it. There's no commercial value to art. It just is. It's just purely expressive. You know, you're not thinking, how can I leverage this for money? Or how can I leverage this to make a living? How do I leverage this to um, uh, gain the admiration of others? You know, I mean, there's a whole, there's a lot of currencies that people operate in beyond money, right? That are payday for them, right? But for a child, right? It's just like, it just is. This has no no utility to it, you know, but yeah. we live in a society that places monetary values and other things on, on art. Um, and 
what a joy to be able to do it for no other reason except it needs to be done, you know? That's fantastic. Yeah. It seems like some of the most beautiful creative work that I've seen come out of artists is the kind of work where they, they go back and refer to it as work they couldn't not do. Mm-hmm. It's like, why did you do that? And at some point, they, you see them like searching for the words and they can't find them and they just kind of get to this point where they just go, I don't know, I just guess I just could, I could not do it. And that's when I feel like, at least in my experience of looking at a lot of other artists and asking them questions about the work they create, that seems to be turning into a telltale sign of, oh, that's when they're about to do something special. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is is that lots of artists are exquisitely, if not to a fault, in touch with their interior emotional landscape. And those those feelings are, uh, are often torrential, you know, um, more than other people, and uh, which can lead to a great deal of self-absorption and turbulence in their lives. If you get hooked into the feeling space, you know, you can lose all ground. You're like a kite without a, a string, right? But if you don't do something with those feelings, if you can't give expression to what it is that you're feeling inside, they can turn on you, you know? And so it's like, well, you know, I think in Chasing Francis, I, I wrote this down this idea that all art is speaking in tongues, right? So when human language fails to be able to carry the freight of what you're feeling, you, know, you just, you've reached the limit of language, then you have to default to something that can communicate it in, a, in an efficient, sideways. You know, you have to, like Emily Dickinson says, you got to come in slant. You know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Mm. So you have to go to a song, or you have to do a dance. You have to dance, or you have to, you know, do a painting to say this is what's happening. You know, um, because you, that surfeit of feelings is just going to undo you if you don't have some outlet for it. The first book I ever read by Ian was his memoir, Jesus, My Father, The CIA, and Me. It's a compelling read filled with amazing stories. Gaining some insight into Ian's childhood and relationship with his father through his memoir made me curious about where his journey to living a creative life was influenced. I couldn't wait to go back to the story of some of his childhood to try to figure it out. In fact, let's go there now. Okay, now you're 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 plunging into deep ter- your thera- therapeutic territory here. So uh, I'm not sure we have enough time if you want to start delving into that. But no, I you know it's hard to know. But my dad, he was a you know a, a terrible alcoholic. So it's very hard to kind of discern what was going on underneath the thick layers of problems. Sure. Um, you know, my mom uh, did have a creative side, but my mom is a very uh, strong. Um, presence. Uh, she's a hard-charging person who, you know, if you've ever read Kazantzakis' Zorba the Greek, my mom is the the female version of this gigantic... My mom walked in the room like, like you know, you can feel my mom's presence 15 minutes before she arrives. You know, <laughs> she's sort of a force she's of nature. Eight, she is. Uh, <laughs> she's big. My mom is big. Uh, you know, she's charming, she's smart, she's b- courageous, um, but not particularly artistic, no. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I guess that means when you wrote some of those first poems, did you come out and recite them for your Yes, mom? and they were greeted with a great deal of confusion <laughs> <laughs> on their parts. It was like, where did you come from? You, <laughs> you are different than We're other. sending you to Hogwarts. My other children are different <laughs> than you, <laughs> and they are. You know, uh, Although I take that back. My sister's a painter. I mean, that's what she mm. does for a living, and she's a fine, fine painter. 
Um, but, you know, we were, you know, four years apart and she was a girl. I mean, you know, so there were a lot of differences at that level. Um, so, yeah, there were other artists in the family, but th- we were all very different. So then how did you stay one? Well, I think for the reasons I just uh, spoke about, which is that I had a an, uh, a rich, perhaps even oversupply of feelings, you know. I, I, when I walk into a room, the first thing that hits me is a feeling. It's not a thought. It's not an impulse. It's more of a, what do I feel when I walk in here? What am I picking up? What, my, what is my intuition telling me in this moment about uh, the level of feeling? Uh, what's going on? I mean, and what is the, you know, we're in a black box right now. What, so I'm just sort of acutely aware of things when I go places. And, uh, you know, you start to, we lie, sometimes when I'm teaching the Enneagram, I'll say that fours are these, romantic artist types you know they <laughs> they tend to uh just, they're just attuned to aesthetics they're attuned to feelings um and so they you know they have work to do around elevating thinking and doing you know to the same level as just feeling so they can actually do something with those things and uh in some coherent contributive manner you know do you think that this is in part what led you to becoming interested in psychotherapy? Yeah, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a sort of an academic side to me. You know, it's, it's not just, you know, I'm, I'm curious at that level too. And, uh, you know, and honestly, uh, I had been in a lot of therapy, you know, and, I, and so I understood its value. And, and, and there's, there's something very artistic about therapy, you know, if it's done well. It's not just a clinical... You know, I don't even think it's a science. I mean, psychology is only what a hundred and you know a couple of decades old. I mean, we treat it as though it's got religious power when really it's an infant, you know, relative to other disciplines. And um, you know, I think to be with another human and to dive deep into their person and try to make sense of who they are and why they are finding roadblocks. You know, I. I to do that requires a little bit of artistic skill um, or the same skills that you use as an artist, you know. Um, it's a little bit more like jazz than classical music, you know, because it's real time, you know. You're, you're, you're listening to the whole band to see what's happening and, and, you know, so it's not like Bach or, you know, um, I mean, there are no charts, <laughs> you know, in real time working with another human being's story. So when you... When you wrote your first book, was it a, I have to write this because I can't not do it? Did you write it for those commercial reasons that adults write? Is this write? the spiritual memoir? No, it was a book called, it was a novel called the Chasing, novel. Francis. Okay, Chasing Francis. Yeah, Chasing, yeah. yeah. So Chasing Francis was written because you couldn't not write it? No, I th- well, I mean, so this is my more academic side, right? Like, <laughs> So I was, I was raised a, a Roman Catholic uh, and, you know, went to Catholic schools and so I was in you know, probably up until fifth grade. And uh, so I owe a great debt of gratitude to the sort of the Catholic view of the world, you know, which is very, very different than the Protestant view and really helped me understand myself really as a human being um, in the world. Uh, I, 
I guess um, I wrote Chasing Francis because I, back in that time, you know, the emerging church was such a big deal, you know. And they, people in that space would say, oh, this is the kind of Christian I want to be. And I'd be like, you know, someone's already done that. Like the person you're describing is St. Francis. You know, he's not just a birdbath. You know, he's, <laughs> he actually may, is arguably what's kept the Catholic Church alive for the last, you know, 900 years and been running on his, on his fumes. And by the way, he was an artist. Uh, and so I wanted to introduce him to a Protestant audience that, you know, to say, here is an exemplar. Here is somebody that might provide us with a map to understand who we're called to be at this particular moment in history. And I chose to do it as a novel because more biographies have been written about him than I think uh, according to the Smithsonian, than any other person. Wow. Pretty much, wow. you know, outside of like the big people like Buddha, <laughs> or Jesus, you know, but, sure. you know, more biographies. Fascinating. And so why the memoir? Yeah, why the memoir? Um, was it everyone's like, whoa, this book was amazing. You're an incredible writer. We need something else from you. Well, I had an agent, uh, a wonderful agent. His name was Lee Huff. He died about three, no, maybe four years ago, three or four years ago, uh, I was a dear, dear guy, and he would call me and say, you know, ah, you know, you, you got to, we, we need another book, you know, we just need another book. And there's, a, there's an old expression that all, all, uh, all fiction is memoir and all memoir is fiction. <laughs> and so it's, uh, which is not literal, you're not sure. actually making stuff up, but you're, you know, memory is story. It's mm -hmm. not fact. Of course. You know, it's, you have... Every time you tell a story, it's you're editing it in real time. It's not the same story every time you tell it. And so you're writing out of emotional memory. Otherwise, you're writing an autobiography, which is a different genre, where you have to be completely accurate to date. You have to be, you know, this was at this time on this day. You know, Bill Clinton can't, when he writes a memoir, you know, make, not make stuff up, but color it with emotional memory. It's got to be what it was, uh, unless he says, this is how I felt when this happened. So... You know, the the interesting thing to me about the memoir is I wrote the last chapter first. And I don't entirely, I mean, I guess I know what that means in a weird way, but, and then I went back to the first chapter and began writing toward the last chapter. Um, well, actually, it was then the it was then when I was writing the last chapter, the publisher made me actually add another chapter on at the end against my better judgment. But... I wasn't in a position to say, no, we are not adding another <laughs> chapter. We are ending on this chapter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the memoir was a, a natural step because it, you know, it's novelistic. It's it's not nonfiction. You know, it's got a, it has a very story quality to it. Yeah. So you've done so much, and now you even describe things, and it's songwriter, writer, written books. Your priest. Now, so much of your time is spent teaching people about the Enneagram. Yes. And now that's a book, the podcast. Yeah. You're doing conferences, mm -hmm. workshops. Why the Enneagram in this season of your life? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you're, you know. Again, that's the academic Were you side. You're looking at me. the list on a wall, and you're like, you know, I just need one more thing. Well, you know, I've <laughs> never, I've never, you know, in a way, I mean. If we had time to talk about it, you know, writing a novel is fascinating because I didn't, I know some novelists do this, but I didn't, in terms of process, 
I know, and I kind of know a friend of mine. He's a novelist, and he, when he's writing, he literally goes to like a cheap hotel and with these big white pages, you know, like a big giant sticky, you know, and he takes all the pictures down off the wall and he puts it like chapter one, two, three, and all around the walls, and he literally sketches out the book, and he keeps adding stuff, you know, as he goes along, but he's got an idea of the frame, like he knows where he's going. I don't do that. I literally start on page one, and I have no idea who's coming in to the story or I just know who the main character is and what the kind of idea is and then the books and the characters or the people populating the book start to tell me what they have to do like whether I like it or not and if I try to make them do something else the reader will know it's ringing false you know they'll feel it like ah you're being manipulative or avoidant or they just have an unsettled feeling like this is not true like this is not what this character would do so it's interesting what that does to your theology too <laughs> because you're like well if god if you think of god equating as an author how much does he actually know as he's writing you know like what does he know um, as he goes along is he responsive or responsible you know, like in the moment. These are the kinds of things when you spend a lot of time alone you think about. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and then people let you out and you start talking a lot and they look at you like, oh, you went to Hogwarts. Uh, so, you know, um, I don't even remember the original question was, but it... I love you. I love talking. Please continue on about this, the idea of a character and how you start and yeah. your creative process. Yeah, so years and years ago, I, I read a book by, it was a Nobel Prize winning author's playwright his name was um, Luigi Pirandello and uh, he wrote a book uh, entitled uh, Six Characters in Search of an Author came out of the absurdist tradition uh, of the early 20th century and uh, he um, gosh pretty amazing the, just the title alone arrested me I remember seeing it and thinking six characters in search of an author and so the premise of the play is these six you know, strangers show up on the set of a play rehearsal and the stage manager says, what are you doing here? Well, who are you? What are you doing here? And they essentially say, well, uh, we are characters from a play that our author abandoned, just never finished. And we're, we're in search of an author. And so we're just wondering if anyone here would like to finish our play, you know? <laughs> and, and I just, I remember thinking to myself, that's a very good description of sort of the 20th century spiritual problem, you know, is people in search of an author, right? And I often muse and think about, you know, if we are, and we use this image a lot, characters in the ongoing story of God, and that's a thing you hear all the time, you know, like, uh, I live in the story of God, which actually isn't true most of the time, but... Um, you know, uh, we're in the process of co-creation. You know, it's not like, you know, God's, you're still being created. It's not like you were created and now you have to live out the script. You are actively part of creation right now of your own life. And um, so that's what happens in books. And the, as a correlate to the faith, uh, that's how I sort of see the, the human life. You're not trapped so when I teach the Enneagram, part of what I'm doing is having people know more about their way in the world and hopefully have them begin to ask questions about this very matter of, okay, so if these are the cards, then 
how do I participate in the creation of, of myself? Um, and, uh, you know, universe is still expanding. Me too, you know. So how do I know myself and be self-aware enough to be a, a good character in that story, you know? Yeah. So. so the Enneagram was helpful to you before you decided to embrace it as I'm going to help teach this to other people? Well, I'd be careful with the word embrace. That sounds like I, <laughs> like I just, you know, it's, it's like I said to you earlier, gosh, I, I like, I think the Enneagram is, I think I, I say this in the book that George, I quote George Box, the statistician who said, you know, all models are wrong, some are useful. I see the Enneagram as wrong, right? But it's very useful. And, and wrong in the sense that how could you possibly capture the totality, which is how people sometimes treat it, hmm. uh, that captures the, the human person. What a ridiculous idea. But it's useful. Uh, what a nice starting place to the conversation. Sure. But yeah, it's just a start, you know. And, and frankly, you know, one of the things I start to talk about a little bit more now is, you know, it's far better, far better than having a good personality is to be a good person. And I mean that in the the classical Aristotelian sense of the idea, right? Like goodness, like or talking about the transcendentals, like beauty, truth, and goodness. These are very deep qualities, right? So good doesn't mean, you know, like what we tend to use it as, you know. And as a word, I I think, um, you know, for example, character trumps personality every time. It's much more important than personality. Mm -hmm. Who cares? I mean, at one level, I'd rather have a somewhat boring guy who's really, really loyal, honest, kind, you know, has really a virtuous life, marry my daughter, than some guy with a really, really great personality who has no character. Uh, so, I mean, I think the personality is a good place to start, but it's a terrible place to end the conversation. Why is self-awareness important for artists and storytellers? Well, I just think it's good for human beings so they don't go banging guardrail to guardrail through people's lives. I mean, you know, we, we and we've all experienced it, the Maybe an example would be when you're lost in thought and you find you've passed the exit on the highway three exits later, you're like, you realize, where was I the last three exits? Like, where was I? And I would argue that what, what's happening there is you're having a lived experience of something that's happening all the time. You're on auto self. You're literally lost in thought. Lost is not a, you know, there's the operative word, right? Like lost. And I think People go through life missing exit after exit after exit because mm. they're asleep. Yeah. And you, you see this all the way through the writings of the contemplatives. If you look at St. John of the Cross or Julian of Norwich or Thomas Merton, I can go on and on through all of these great, the mystics and the contemplatives in the Christian tradition. They would, if you just wanted to write a summary sentence of what every single one of them said in a different way was, wake up. That's it. Wake up. Like, wake up to what I said earlier about the urgent immediacy of God's presence and activity in this moment. Not in general, but in this moment. And most people are sound asleep. And so the Enneagram can help people become not just self-aware in a way that it's not self-absorption. It's not sort of a negative, overly self-referential life. It's, it's just being able to observe and live in a space of freedom, because as long as you're on auto self, there are powers and hidden forces, silent forces beneath the waterline of your life. As long as they're unconscious, they're autonomous, and they own you. And you don't want to be owned by drives and motivations that uh, leave you a mystery to yourself and a danger to community in many mm. ways. Yeah. 
how would that change that we work with each other? So much of the creative industry involves collaboration. Well, not just the creative industry, but every industry in a globalized world, there has to be more and more collaboration. You know, it's no longer, you know, just competitive. To be competitive, you have to be collaborative. So, you know, um, I think the way that artists and people in the in other sectors, they would have their own differences, you know, as to their relationship to self-awareness. Um, I, you know, artists are often more self-conscious than self-aware. You, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're yeah. they're a little bit more like I'm. I just don't feel comfortable in my skin. I don't, I don't really know why, and they get lost in the mud. You That's know, why they can't describe what they do. Yeah, in part, <laughs> you know, and and you know, part of that is identity stuff, and you know, there's. A whole host of things happening over there but knowing ourselves can help us save time and in a sense of communicating with other people like you can work things out a lot faster with people things can move forward more quickly if you know how another person sees the world and you can communicate with them more effectively and efficiently and more compassionately um, I mean, one of the great gifts of the Enneagram is it helps you realize, oh, you're not a jerk <laughs> to yourself or to the other person. You know, it's like, this is part of my architecture. And so what do I do with it? How do I live? You know, I, I have a spiritual director. He's a, an Episcopal monk. Yes, we have monks and nuns. Most people don't know that. But <laughs> we do have celibates in our the Episcopal church. And And my spiritual director once said to me when I was whining one day about something, he just got fed up with me. And he, it's very, it's very difficult to receive when a monk gets angry with you. <laughs> you know, you really must have gone off the wire to make him like be. You know, I got a pissed off monk on my hands. You know, it's like, oof, wow, I've really done something here. And and he said, you know, Ian, you know, this is your life. These are the cards. So what's the invitation? Hmm. And he, I said, well, I get the first two parts of that, but what do you mean by the third? What's the invitation? He said, well, you know, embedded in all of life, there is a persistent invitation. It's ever-changing, but God is always embedding an invitation in both suffering and joy to something more, you know, for you to become something more and uh, uh, or to learn something or to become something different. And uh, so, again, this awareness, this... I'm always sorry. I'm quoting a lot of people. I told you I spent a lot of time on my hands. Too many, you know, <laughs> thinking about it. But Simone Weil was a great, great writer, great mystic, really, of the 20th century. But you know, people think mystics write this esoteric stuff. It's very practical when you read it. It's very, very practical. They were very suspicious of people who had these exotic experiences, uh, the real ones. And she just said, you know, prayer is paying attention. Like the spiritual life is about paying attention to everything. Just prayer is paying attention. Uh, and so you can't pay attention if you're asleep. You have to learn how to be awake all the time. And self-awareness is the constant reminder to yourself to wake up and be here. There's so much to miss. We were talking about this before we started recording, but I first heard you speak a couple about a month ago at the um, Road Back to You conference here in Nashville. And... Um, I think you I think I heard it first at this conference that um you don't know what your true enneagram number is until you become self-aware of your weaknesses the things that whenever you hear things in your type that make you go Ugh, 
that's me. I'm embarrassed. And I think that's true for me. And it's helped me become more aware of my insecurities and the set or the things that um, could annoy or set back other people. And um, I feel like that's one of the most helpful things that's happened to me as a um, person who's studying the Enneagram as an artist. Mm-hmm. Becoming a little more more aware of the ways that I could hurt or offend or um, cause other people harm. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. You, you can hurt people by loving them incorrectly. Sure. You can have all the right intentions in the world, but you can love in a way that's violent without knowing it, you know? And so, or that just sort of falls on deaf ears because you will assume that everyone here is love the same way you yes. do. Yes, yeah, right? yeah. And so you you are able to make accommodations, you know, based on approximations because everybody's different, right? No, no one is a seven. I mean, you know, that's kind of a ridiculous idea. You know, there's just one type of seven in the world. You know, you share a constellation or a suite of traits with another person, but you're your own hue, you're your own contrast of that particular color, and you may look nothing like another seven in your presentation. So, you know, you the, the great thing about the Enneagram, unlike other personality typologies or is that it not only reveals your strengths right it's going to show you the places in your life that will explain the wreckage in the rearview mirror uh, <laughs> right. and the older you get there's more wreckage i can assure you that you can look back on uh the patterns that you know repeatedly because you were asleep you were just mm-hmm. on auto self and so you were you know i'm working on a new book and you know the part of the problem is is that most of us live in a state of reactivity all the time. We're just like uh, the image I use is even though we don't have phone booths anymore, think of it like a box then, you know, you're you're like just trapped in a box with an angry hornet and you're just swatting away and just, you know, reacting, constantly reacting. You get in a lot of trouble when you live in reactivity, you know. When you're awake, you, you have an opportunity to make freer choices, thought-through choices about how to love, about uh, how to express frustration and anger to different types of people how so that they will hear you. Sure, uh, yeah. So. yeah. You've got a mic that's connected to thousands of storytellers and creatives. What do you want? What do you want to tell them? So I went to a lecture the other night. Uh, um, a friend of mine, Lee Camp, does this thing called the token show and he had the theologian stanley Hauerwas from duke on and uh you know he, stanley's a very curmudgeonly sort of figure um very outspoken and uh he said in his ethics class at duke he said all right so we're going to learn about ethics this semester but i can sort of summarize everything about ethics in one sentence one sentence all of ethics he goes tell the truth and I was sort of thrown back on my heels when he said it because I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, that's not just, you know, don't lie. I mean, what he's saying is tell the truth. And whether that's about issues of justice or art or business, just tell the truth. And I thought it really gave me pause to think about and to self-examine, like, is that true of my life? Do I tell the truth? So as you create story, as you create paintings, as you create any art, right, tell the truth. Just tell the truth. Um, which doesn't mean to give all the, the facts, because we overprivilege facts. Uh, d- does that make sense? Like Maya Angelou's great expression, which is, you know, don't let the facts get in the way of the truth. You know, like, be careful of that. It just means 
tell the truth as you see it right now. Uh, don't let culture tell you what your truth has to be. Don't let don't let your Christian publishing company tell you what you can and cannot write because it doesn't conform, you know, on, on a commercial basis, you know, or whatever. Just tell the truth. And if you do that, then you'll create something of value. Uh, if you don't, you'll create something that in 20 years from now you'll hate yourself for. I'm trying to live my life more, to use Ian's words, awake. And I hope this conversation inspires you too as well. And maybe an overview of the Enneagram will, again, to use Ian's words, be useful in that effort. But I'm confident that some of you are listening, maybe even rolling your eyes a little bit, thinking, really, the Enneagram? Yet another personality test that's supposed to help me understand myself? And there are others who may have even heard bad things about the Enneagram in general. Out of curiosity, prior to our interview with Ian, I started typing the phrase, is the Enneagram, into Google. And the first two things to pop up automatically on autofill were, is the Enneagram scientific? And is the Enneagram a cult? So before we jump into each nine numbers next week and what they mean for each of you, I wanted to finish this week's conversation with Ian making a case for why you should tune in. Why the Enneagram? Well, here's what he had to say. You know, the, the Enneagram as a typology is atheological. It has no theological bias. It's not even Christian, per se. I mean, you know, or Buddhist, or Hindu, or New Age. It's just is as an instrument, right? It's just perennial wisdom, right? So, you know, you, anybody can take it and impose a grid on it and say it's this, or it's that, or it's Jewish, or it's Christian, or it's whatever, you know, it's Hindu. It, you know, what do we want to do with it? Um, that's its blessing, and you know, depending on who you are, it's its downside. But that's true of any psychological model. Yeah, why the right? skepticism? I don't understand. Well, I, you know, there's a lot of anxiety. Religious people, are, particularly Christians, are just anxious. You know, uh, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but there's a lot of anxiety out there, and it's unfortunate. You know, I think it was Luther or it was Calvin who said that, you know, wherever truth is found, you know, if God is a God of truth, it regardless of where it's found, he literally said, it belongs to Christians then because it's, we should avail ourselves of it. We avail ourselves of medicine all the time and, you know, it has nothing to to do with, you know, the Christian faith, but, you know, I've never met even the most conservative Christians say, oh, I'm not going to, the, well, actually, I could take that back. <laughs> no, I think about it, they won't go to doctors, but they're not usually uh, looked upon by the whole as being very wise. Um, so, first of all, you know, they hear Enneagram and they think pentagram. They see the di the diagram that we use to explain it. It looks like a Led Zeppelin, old Led Zeppelin album <laughs> cover, you know. And, you know, that's just kind of like weird. I don't know what that is. It's um, it's rigid. It uh, lacks curiosity. I think that's a not a virtue. Um, and The lacking of curiosity oh, is yeah, not a virtue. Oh, it's definitely not a virtue. Uh, you know, that. even in the... I would say that openness to experience is a virtue. The closedness, close to be closed to experience is uh, that's a prison you may not know you're in, which makes it the most secure place in the world uh, mm. to keep you. And so, um, you know, the Enneagram, just for people who don't know it, is just a typology like countless others, uh, whether it's the Myers-Briggs uh, or Strength Finders or DISC, it's actually a little bit, all of which are nice instruments, but again, for reasons we were just discussing, 
nice side of it is, is it also shows you what needs work. Um, those tend to sort of focus on just sort of more static than dynamic. Um, and I think that uh, what it does is it doesn't stick to traits which aren't necessarily all that helpful. It what it does is it tries to raise to conscious awareness. What are the hidden drives and motivations behind the traits? And once you know that, you know, once you know what your besetting sin typically is, you know, more than the others, uh, then you can live more consciously and, and with more intention. And I think, I think that's what, how God would have us be in the world. So there you go. And if you believe in God or know God at all, we believe that the Enneagram will be helpful to you, your work, and especially the way that you collaborate with other people. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation where we got to know a little bit more about Ian and his work. And next week, we're going to jump straight into all nine numbers and what they mean. At the beginning of this episode, I kicked things off by letting you know that if you stuck around to the end, I would give you a discount code for Story 2017. If you missed out on registering before our recent price increase and wish you could have saved that 100 bucks, well, you're in luck. Head over to story2017.com and register right now and use the discount code EPISODE37. That's just EPISODE37. The number's not spelled out. Just type in discount code EPISODE37. If you do that, and register today, we'll give you $100 off the current rate. $100, but it isn't good for long, so be sure to register today. Again, just go to story2017.com. There you'll see our lineup, at least the initial lineup. There's a lot more amazing surprises coming. It's gonna be an amazing year. I am Harris III. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Story Podcast. I cannot wait for you to hear the show next week. This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.